0: You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And today I'm talking about cardiac complications of COVID-19. And joining me is Dr. Matthew Elias, who's an attending cardiologist in the Cardiac Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the podcast, Matt.
1: Thank you, Katie, for having me. It is a pleasure to join you today.
0: A little disclaimer before we start, as with all things related to COVID, guidelines and knowledge on this topic change very rapidly. So the things that we're discussing today were current as of January 29th, 2021. And if things do change, please keep up to date with the newest guidelines from the CDC we're going to talk about what effect COVID-19 has had on the heart and how it impacts the outpatient care we provide for children with COVID-19 and recovered from it. It seems that whether we are talking about acute COVID infection or mis the main cardiac complication we are concerned with is myocarditis. So let's refresh our memory a little on this. I'm an outpatient pediatrician now. What are the clinical symptoms of myocarditis?
1: Well, myocarditis is an inflammatory disease of the heart muscle, the myocardium. And in general, clinical myocarditis is relatively rare. We still encounter it pretty frequently at CHOP, just like every other condition. And when thinking about the clinical symptoms, you always need to make sure that, most importantly, it's on the differential. It can affect children of all ages, although the peak incidence seems to be in the neonatal period. And the primary cause is infectious, although there's a variety of different causes. And essentially, every pediatric virus has been implicated with myocarditis at some point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But for clinical symptoms, they can be quite subtle, unfortunately, and and they really vary by age. So in infants and young children, it can be hard to tell that they're presenting with heart failure. They might often have gastrointestinal symptoms, primarily hmm. vomiting, poor appetite, often have fever, lethargy, pallor. And then on examination, classically, they'll be pretty tachycardic and tachypneic, but that can be hard to tell if someone's in The outpatient office is febrile and doesn't feel well. Mm -hmm. Their heart's going to be beating faster and they're going to be breathing faster. But there could be other signs of hepatomegaly, a gallop indicative of heart failure. And then a clinical course is just not progressing. Mm -hmm. In older children, it's a little bit different. There might be more of a history one to two weeks beforehand of some viral disease. And they might have some similar symptoms lethargy, fever, pallor, and the GI symptoms still. But older children, adolescents, more often are gonna have more typical symptoms you would think of for the heart. So exercise intolerance, syncope, maybe chest pain, maybe respiratory symptoms. Mm-hmm. And especially in teenagers, some of their first symptoms can be sudden cardiac death, which is why we always worry about myocarditis particularly. And and their examinations again could be similar, consistent with heart failure. And especially when you're seeing them in an the outpatient office or in the ER, they're definitely at risk for quick progression to to shock and and more significant clinical manifestations.
0: Hmm. Thank you for that review. If we send a child for an EKG, what abnormalities do you see with myocarditis?
1: There's not necessarily one specific EKG finding indicative of myocarditis. There's especially unfortunately many non-specific findings, which can make it very tricky. So they're typically abnormal although not always. And there's often sinus tech cardia. Classically, by the book, there's a low-voltage QRS complex or low-voltage QRS complexes everywhere where the QRS spikes are just a lot smaller than they should be. Mm-hmm. And if there's myocardial injury, ischemia, there could be ST segment changes, T-wave abnormalities. However, as an aside, often on regular EKGs, you might see nonspecific T-wave abnormality in otherwise healthy patient. And we might see that, but it might have nothing to do with myocarditis, which makes it hard. Mm-hmm. There could be signs of ventricular enlargement if there is heart failure. So that might be signs of left ventricular, right ventricular hypertrophy. The P waves could be very big or wide for atrial enlargement. And then there could be ectopy. There could be some premature beats or arrhythmia of PACs, PVCs, other arrhythmias. So essentially it's select all uh, when thinking about <laughs> what kind of EKG abnormality could could there be.
0: This is why I'm glad that I have cardiologist friends like you to help us out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try. So, how does COVID nineteen cause myocarditis, and how is this similar to other viruses? Which you mentioned, almost all viruses can do this. So, how is that uh, happening?
1: So, we're still learning the, and and somehow it's already been in the year since this mm-hmm. all started, uh, sadly. But the SARS CoV two virus can appear to affect the heart in a variety of ways. So, in in adults specifically, there's. The hyperinflammatory state, cytokine storm, and that can affect the heart, uh, resulting in myocardial injury. Mm-hmm. There's primary lung disease, often more often with adults. Injury could impact the heart. There could be microvascular dysfunction. There's others at CHOP looking into that with ischemia, small vessel vasculitis, and a variety of other theories and causes. But but certainly, my, myocarditis has been our primary concern. Mm-hmm. And there have been a few publications discussing the inflammatory cell infiltration myocyte necrosis, the things that are, we typically think of with myocarditis, and that's exactly similar to what these other virus, pediatric viruses do that cause myocarditis, this inflammation, myocyte necrosis. It has been a little bit controversial whether SARS-CoV-2 virus is, is actually truly directly invading the myocardium. There have been some recent articles in in the literature and then the regular media on the and on topic, actually. We still worry about myocardial injury regardless of the, mm-hmm. of the definition. And In an adults, troponin levels are frequently elevated when you're hospitalized, indicative of myocardial injury. And when it, adults in particular evaluate with an echocardiogram, it's really not uncommon to find diminished ventricular function. All that is depressing. Um, in, in children, we we have not actually seen this cardiac involvement as often compared to adults. Mm-hmm. We have not seen that tsunami of, of heart disease. Um, we do encounter it, sometimes acute cardiac manifestations, primarily ventricular dysfunction, with some patients admitted with COVID-19, but it has been very different. And we, we don't know. It, it's very unclear if there's a true difference between children and adults in response to the virus, or it could just be reflective that we're just not performing these tests while inpatient. We don't routinely perform troponin levels mm-hmm. uh, and okay. obtain echocardiograms in every patient, which is different than a lot of adult institutions do because mm-hmm. of different background for their adult patients. I suspect it's some combination of each. Mm-hmm. The other issues of myocarditis and COVID and cardiac manifestations are even beyond that acute phase, but there's concern of ongoing potentially chronic symptoms. So there was, there was a report last summer, I believe it was in the summer of 78% of adults in one study had abnormal cardiac MRIs, even after a COVID infection.
0: Hmm.
1: And that was alarming. I did not want to read that. I remember right. standing in my kitchen, reading out my phone. It was very mm-hmm. depressing, but based on the age of the patients, their comorbidities, that's not really applicable to our patients. Right. And also, others have pointed out that this methodology maybe is a little bit controversial, probably at 78% value is a little bit less, hopefully a lot less.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What was a little bit more reassuring, I think it was only two weeks ago, there was another study from the University of Wisconsin of about 150 patients who were competitive student-athletes, mm-hmm. um, so college age, and they were all asymptomatic or had mild to moderate disease, and they underwent a variety of different tests, cardiac tests, two out of 145 criteria for myocarditis. So definitely not 78%. Right, That's good. Two is higher than zero, but that, that made me feel better. And then the last thing to get back to your question about other viruses, it's important to note, we don't necessarily know what the typical pediatric virus does to the heart. We know that a lot of other viruses can affect the heart with myocarditis, but we don't routinely test everyone for troponin level, do an echo or MRI mm-hmm. if you just come in with a respiratory illness. About... 10 15 years ago a group elsewhere had looked Let's was a group of children who presented with different symptoms of just regular febrile viral illnesses okay. and no concern for cardiac issues 8% of them had elevated troponin levels when they had checked everyone wow so it's really unclear what what does that mean and right. when we're looking at heart disease with covid it just shows how important it is to compare it to other pediatric viruses that we just don't really have any background of but ultimately it is still to be determined how often myocarditis or at least some myocardial injury Occurs in our patients with COVID, and both in initial hospitalization and far out in recovery.
0: Yeah, these are great points because you know, obviously, as a primary care pediatrician, I see children with viruses all the time, and I can't remember the last time I ordered troponin. So, you're right; we probably are underestimating the scope of the problem even before COVID, but maybe even even now too, because we don't we don't do that routinely.
1: Definitely, and it, and it's hard to know if a troponin level is checked. Without any true underlying cardiac concern. Mm -hmm. Is that clinically relevant? And and what does that mean for the long term? But it was interesting to see that.
0: So, because of this association with myocarditis, the American College of Cardiology has published guidelines about the return to sports following a COVID infection. And these guidelines are tiered and based on a patient's degree of symptoms and age. So, let's start with the kids who are less than 12 years old and either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. When can they return to sports?
1: It's a great question. It's a question that has come up more and more over the past several months, and I'm sure going into the spring and, and the fall, we'll see how long everything continues here. Mm-hmm. Before answering it, I do want to give credit to Stephen Paradon, one of my co-attendings in cardiology, is the medical director of our cardiovascular exercise physiology lab. Mm-hmm. He runs our exercise stress tests. He was the Co author on that ACC, American College of Cardiology document, and he's definitely very involved in our working group to make our current CHOP recommendations. Right. And we've made some changes to those guidelines from last year based on our experience with COVID patients, additional published guidelines, and there a variety of them and additional evidence. But many aspects are still similar. So, for your question as far as the asymptomatic component, for all asymptomatic patients, we would actually not recommend routine cardiac testing of any kind um, unless there's an underlying cardiac concern.
0: Right. Good.
1: And this category could include children who had a positive PCR in the setting of exposure or an incidental finding if their school mandates having a negative test or before coming to the hospital for a procedure. But then that next category, if you're younger than 12, so mild to moderate symptoms not requiring hospitalization, that's when we start thinking about having some age cutoff, and we chose 12 years old um, based mm-hmm. on the ACC document. It really comes back to why do we worry about sports and COVID? What is the association between sports and myocarditis? Mm-hmm. So myocarditis is one of the primary causes of sudden cardiac events and sudden cardiac death in adolescence. It's not number one that we have perturbed cardiomyopathy, but myocarditis accounts for about 7 to 10% or so in most studies. And what's a little bit reassuring is that sudden cardiac events, sudden cardiac death from myocarditis is far less common when you're younger than 12 years old. Hmm. For younger children, the level of intensity of a sporting event may not be that much more strenuous than normal normal activities, normal recreational activities, playing, right. running around the house, jumping off the couch. But for but for older kids and teenagers, they're being pushed by their coaches themselves, their teammates, beyond all their normal comfort level and really to maximize their athletic performance. And so if they have underlying myocarditis, now there's suddenly a risk of a sudden cardiac event because they're overexerting themselves. Mm-hmm. So long answer to the question, but for children younger than twelve years old who who were never hospitalized, we would recommend waiting until their symptoms have resolved and then returning to sports slowly after two weeks. Okay. I guess the last last two points that I just thought of as I, as I said that there is some wiggle room in that age cutoff, so we focus on twelve years old because of the intensity of sports. And I've been asked questions from other attendings at Chop about what about my patient who's an eleven year old who's very involved in competitive gymnastics. Mm, right. And twelve is not a hard definition. Right. The risk is probably a lot lower the younger you are, but no one will fault anyone for obtaining an EKG in any setting. And and the other aspect of this of this question is waiting two weeks after symptoms resolve is very different than waiting ten days after symptom onset when people people are typically cleared to go back to activity and transmission risk should be lower based on latest evidence and guidelines in the CDC.
0: Right, because you can have you can have lingering symptoms for a while. After you're cleared to go back, you're not necessarily contagious, but you might still be having some of the shortness of breath or cough that kind of linger for a while. So you're saying two weeks after all of that is gone.
1: Correct. Correct. And and if there are things that are lasting a while, loss of taste or smell, I would exclude from this. Mm-hmm. But if, if there's lingering symptoms, then definitely could evaluate that time course. But really just being extra cautious, there's, for the most part, no rush to return to sports. And until we until we know more, our thought was it's better to wait and be extra cautious than to rush back to playing competitive sports.
0: Right. So now that we've talked about the less than 12, what about kids who are over 12? What considerations should be taken before they return to sports?
1: So once you're 12 years old and older, because of the comments earlier, this is when we sometimes would recommend some cardiac testing. So children who are at least 12 years old, who are involved in competitive sports, being sports where they're being pushed by their coaches and teammates to overexert themselves. And again, had mild to moderate symptoms, but not requiring hospitalization. That's a different category.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We would recommend waiting until symptoms resolve, waiting another two weeks, but then before going back to sports, having an EKG. Okay. And this is really a screening tool for myocarditis. It's not perfect, but if there's a reassuring, completely normal EKG or finding that would not be indicative of myocarditis, that will make us feel better before patients are going back to sports. It's not 100%, but it's definitely helpful. And for patients who are not involved in competitive sports, at this time, we are not recommending a routine EKG to go back to gym class or recreational sports when, when it's allowed um, you know, with, with friends in the future.
0: Great. That's very helpful for us to keep in mind. And and you're talking about competitive sports. You keep mentioning that. So like you mentioned, we're not talking about kids who are like throwing the football around in their backyard, right? We're talking about kids who are playing at a higher level of competition where they're really exerting themselves consistently.
1: Yes. Um. So definitely being on some team really where there should be some coach or someone saying, run one more lap and... Right. I have flashbacks to high school of going <laughs> back and forth over and over until until feeling very sick. Yeah. Um, so someone really pushing like that to do so, rather than playing basketball in the driveway with friends or throwing a football in the backyard.
0: Right. Now, how do these guidelines change if your COVID infection is severe enough to require hospitalization?
1: I do think it's important to note that the indications for hospitalization can vary different institutions. And it's also important to note that Patients who are admitted because of an acute respiratory failure from COVID are very different than patients who might be nauseous in the ER, or fail a PO challenge, and need to be admitted overnight for dehydration. Mm-hmm. So that has to be taken into consideration. And and it's also important to know that we have a lot of patients who are admitted to CHOP who are incidentally found to be positive for SARS-CoV-2. And whether they're here for appendicitis or some other procedure or any admission and they're actually asymptomatic. So I would exclude all those patients from this category. Yep,
0: that makes sense.
1: But for patients who, of all ages, who require hospitalization due to true severe symptoms of COVID-19, we would recommend an outpatient cardiology evaluation at least two weeks after discharge, regardless of activity level.
0: Hmm.
1: And not just competitive sports, but all activity. And patients should anticipate being restricted from exercise for some period of time. So if they're seen in the primary care office after discharge, feel free to punt that question to cardiology mm-hmm. if they were just discharged from the hospital. This may be up to three to six months. It really depends on the severity of the admission. For patients who are admitted for symptoms but did not require an ICU admission, we typically would recommend at that first outpatient visit an EKG, an echocardiogram, um, but it really depends on the patient and the situation if they weren't already obtained while inpatient, which is not our routine practice. And at that visit, if, if the patient's asymptomatic, there's no evidence of any current or prior cardiac involvement, we would say it's reasonable to return to activity at that time. So that could be as soon as two weeks after discharge. But on the other end, if patients are admitted to the ICU for COVID or have some sign of cardiac involvement while inpatient, we would treat them like myocarditis with restriction from sports for three to six months and really a much more thorough evaluation beyond EKG and Echo. They typically will receive at least one holter monitor and exercise stress test at the end of that restriction period possibly a cardiac mri maybe more than one mm-hmm. and they really undergo a more thorough process in order to be cleared based on different guidelines from the american college of cardiology i'll also mention that all these guidelines really continue to evolve they've already changed many times in the past several months mm-hmm. our recommendations some people listening might might note that the american academy of pediatrics has published their own recommendations and they're they're slightly different i hope that doesn't cause too much frustration but And I'm sure there's going to be a variety of different protocols at different institutions, medical societies who publish all their own recommendations. Eventually, I I suspect that once we have more evidence, these guidelines will all become more uniform. And we're all talking about the same topic with slight different variations.
0: And these guidelines that we just talked about are published on our CHOP clinical pathway for COVID, which we can link to on our website as well. So if people can't remember what they just heard from you, that's another place where they can reference these guidelines.
1: Yes, definitely. So we have two posted documents on our website available on the internet, but also the internet for anyone who would like to see. One is for primary care providers in the topic we're talking about today, but we also have one posted for pediatric cardiologists in case there's pediatric cardiologists mm-hmm. listening, our recommendations for what we should do in, in our clinic and that, that will definitely change over time as well.
0: Great. Thank you so much for those. Sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about Miss c So now this usually is not an outpatient diagnosis as these patients have clinically severe illness requiring hospitalization, but we do sometimes see these kids earlier in their illness and, of course, after discharge. We know that there's some overlap in symptoms between Kawasaki disease and MIS-C, so how are the cardiac findings similar or different between these two diagnoses?
1: Well, our thoughts about MIS-C and the possible connections with Kawasaki disease Have absolutely changed over time. Mm. We first heard about this condition in late April last year from the National Health Service in the United Kingdom when there were suddenly these reports of an increasing number of children presenting with really significant inflammatory disease similar to Kawasaki disease, which was concerning and and surprising. They were typically really sick and they had some temporal association with COVID-19. Over time, we saw that the patients with MIC typically present about two to six weeks after initially being infected with SARS-CoV-2. There appeared to be a lot of similarities with Kawasaki disease at first, and there still are, but mm-hmm. many of the classic symptoms of KD. So fever, of course, conjunctival injection, rash, and mucosal changes are the most common ones shared between the two diagnoses. Mm-hmm. We've also seen that younger MISC patients are more commonly had KD-like features, less common in the older adolescent patients. But even some teenagers with MISC look like they have Kawasaki disease, which would be nearly unheard of hmm. to have a teenager with Kawasaki disease. Right but patients with MISC are are much sicker than typical Kawasaki disease patients about 50% of them here and elsewhere have presented with acute left ventricular systolic dysfunction which can progress pretty rapidly many require intensive care management for a shock and have required inotropic support fortunately many patients recover pretty rapidly although we're still learning about long-term outcomes and there is a small subset of regular Kawasaki disease patients in the past with these with similar findings, Kawasaki disease shock syndrome, but even that syndrome seems to be different than than MISc. There are also reports of coronary ectasia. And we'll often say instead of coronary dilation and coronary aneurysms in MISc, but they don't really seem as common as in Kawasaki disease. In Kawasaki mm-hmm. disease, coronary aneurysms typically arise from this necrotizing arteritis that really destroys the wall of coronary arteries. Mm-hmm. But in MISc, a lot of the reports and case series talk about coronary artery involvement really talk about mildly dilated coronary arteries rather than true aneurysms there are aneurysms out there but a lot of them are just mildly dilated and with with misc with this really significant inflammatory response and fevers some degree of mild coronary enlargement could even be expected and a lot of these coronary issues just like ventricular dysfunction seem to be transient although we're still learning and we're participating site in a pediatric heart network study funded by the NIH evaluating long-term outcomes in this exact situation. Mm. But for separate from the cardiac manifestations, there are a lot of differences that we've seen between MISC and KD. So MISC patients typically older; they can be a variety of ages, younger than 21. But mean age is typically around eight years old. Kawasaki disease almost always less than five years old, mm-hmm. about three years old. There's very different racial ethnic backgrounds. Kawasaki disease is more often seen in Asian descent. And there's only a scattering of cases actually of MISC in all of Asia Mm -hmm. that have been published. And there's theories about why that may be and maybe viral variants and a hot topic, unfortunately, right now. Mm -hmm. MISC is often also seen much more commonly here in African-Americans compared to Kawasaki disease. The symptoms differ. In addition to the much more profound cardiac involvement and presentation in shock, patients with MISC more often have gastrointestinal symptoms. In one larger study from the CDC of almost 600 patients, 91% had GI symptoms on presentation, wow. so vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain. Mm-hmm. When we all learn about Kawasaki disease, we always think of there's a high CRP, a high SED rate, right. different signs of inflammation, high platelet count. Mm-hmm. But in MISC, c all the labs are much more abnormal for the most part. And one of the original studies from the United Kingdom that first talked about this condition, and they have a different name for it, but very similar to MISc, they compared their labs of their patients to known labs and known databases for Kawasaki disease and even Kawasaki disease shock syndrome. They were all really different. So there's much more inflammation, much higher CRP, higher ferritin, lower platelets, often a lower hemoglobin lymphopenia, because of all these reasons, while we often think about the connection between Kawasaki disease and MISC, and there, there may be some connection, really here we've been thinking about MISC more like myocarditis actually mm-hmm. than Kawasaki disease.
0: Right, that makes sense. Have we learned more about MISC from our understanding of Kawasaki or vice versa? Because I know we were still learning about Kawasaki really um, as well. So are, th- are we learning from these two different diseases?
1: I think we are. Definitely we're learning about MISC from Kawasaki disease. And mm-hmm. I hope vice versa. Eventually eventually COVID and MISC are gonna go away. And mm-hmm. we're gonna come back to to focusing on Kawasaki disease again. And one aspect is our understanding of Kawasaki disease has definitely helped to understand how to treat MISC. Right. And some of that treatment came initially because there were so many similarities. So immediately institutions in Europe started treating patients with IVIG steroids frequently aspirin pretty similar to our typical Kawasaki disease approach and Mm -hmm. and for the most part patients even though they were really sick at first they start doing pretty well and recovering pretty rapidly so aside from a general anti-inflammatory effect it's really hard to say from my standpoint why Mm -hmm. exactly all these medications work so well but it's hard to argue with success we're going to continue to do that and there are different studies that support the use of these medications and, and we've certainly used them all here but I do hope in the future that that our treatment of MISC will help us learn more about Kawasaki disease mm-hmm. once this is all in the
0: past. Right. Well, we can all hope that this will be in the past. But <laughs> um in, Absolutely. In, in the meantime, a thing that I was wondering about is how your patients with congenital heart disease have been doing during this pandemic. Are are you considering them high risk for complications or are they doing better than we had expected they would?
1: This is a, a very common question uh, for my patients' families and and it's a really important one. In the beginning of this pandemic, we were hearing reports on the news and elsewhere from China that adults with underlying heart disease had higher morbidity mortality rates. Right. And we did not know at the time if, was this was this heart disease adult coronary artery disease? Mm-hmm. Or were there children and adults who had congenital heart disease who were then going to be more at risk? And So we were anxiously watching um, as this then spread to Italy at one point was the epicenter and then New York and everywhere, but we haven't really seen that congenital heart disease is a significant risk factor. In a few large pediatric studies of hospitalized patients with COVID-19, typically about half of them have no underlying conditions. And of those with underlying conditions, in a few studies, it's only been 2% of all patients who are admitted or 6% who've had congenital heart disease. So it's not a huge risk factor. More common comorbidities and risk factors may include obesity and other genetic syndromes, just Mm -hmm. like in adults. Despite that evidence, maybe we're underestimating this number. So I know just from my own patients and talking to their families, a lot of them are taking extra precautions or following the precautions that uh, are recommended by everyone for social distancing and everything else because. They've always been worried about their children getting sick in a normal year from flu or RSV, and now with COVID, they're sadly horrified. Right. And so maybe this is just decreasing the risk of hospitalization for them, and because they're just not getting getting this virus.
0: Right.
1: I've also said that this is really a spectrum. So congenital heart disease, it is technically listed by the CDC as a risk factor. Just by what I said, and congenital heart disease is a really a big spectrum. So I tell my patients that in general even though we haven't seen a significant amount of patients with congenital heart disease becoming really sick with this virus it's possible there's a slightly higher risk in general compared to children without congenital heart disease but a patient with an atrial septal defect that was repaired 10 years ago and is doing great sees a cardiologist every few years very different than someone who has unrepaired cyanotic heart disease awaiting surgery right and i routinely worry about some of my patients in other years in the winter becoming sick with flu or rhinovirus or rsv or anything else and and i think of coronavirus along those same lines. We've thought of, and, and there have been some publications, especially in Europe, of a few different high-risk categories in congenital heart disease. So kids with single ventricles, such as Fontans, or those who have had unrepaired cyanotic heart disease, or other kinds of cyanotic heart disease with baseline lower saturations, maybe low 80s or 70s, think of them as being higher risk. We would think if if you have decreased heart function, instead of a cardiomyopathy, heart transplant, pulmonary hypertension, in theory, we would think that there should be some degree of higher risk. Also, we also have a lot of patients who have genetic syndromes and Mm -hmm. associated immunodeficiencies. So Down syndrome and 22Q11 deletion to George, Mm -hmm. we would lump them in with everyone else that there could be a higher risk in those patients. Mm
0: -hmm. Those are important points to keep in mind, but it's good to know that overall you're not finding significantly increased risk for your patients. It's always good news in pediatrics. Yeah, definitely. Well, a lot of the specialists that I've been talking to have discussed how patients are presenting later to care due to fear of seeking care during the pandemic. Have you seen this in cardiology as well?
1: We've encountered a similar issue at times to some degree. And I understand. I'm a parent myself, and it's a really scary time. We know there are families that are... Going to be concerned about visiting outpatient clinic, visiting the hospital. Some who don't live in Philadelphia are concerned about visiting Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. big crowds and and just being around a lot more people. And different opinions have changed over time from the very beginning, last year in the spring to now. But we've worked really extremely hard, as has the rest of CHOP and, and everyone listening here, I'm sure, to make our clinics as safe as possible, there's a couple the different things that the cardiology does, I think. So in addition to the regular PPE, exposure screening, we've tried to redesign our waiting room at the main hospital in our satellite clinics. So as your patients, families may tell you, unfortunately, their visits can be quite lengthy uh, with mm-hmm. us at times. So they might come in for their EKG, wait in the waiting room, have an echocardiogram, which can sometimes be a long test, come back to the waiting room see one of us come back to the waiting room, maybe go for an exercise stress test. It's, it's a long day. So what we've tried to do is when you register patients over the phone, we bring them directly to an examination room, escorting them from the exam room to the echo lab, then to the exercise lab, really trying to bypass waiting rooms and other people whenever possible or making it safe when they are there. I do feel it's a safe environment for patients and families. And and if, if patients are due for an appointment or if they have a new concern and they're an established patient or even new patient, we're here. We're here twenty four hours a day in the hospital. Our patient clinics are always open during the week and we're ready to see them. So for all care, it's definitely important to make sure patients are not delaying any care, but by no one biased. But when it comes to your heart, please don't wait and, and we're here right <laughs> to help you.
0: It's so great to hear what you are doing and it echoes a lot of what we're doing in primary care. So it's nice to know that my patients are going to be kept safe when they visit cardiology as well. And thank you so much for the care that you provide our patients and for teaching us a little bit of more about how COVID-19 is impacting the heart. I really learned a lot from you today. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much, um, Katie. This podcast and this series are wonderful. And thank you for everything you're doing and educating everyone and, and helping everyone out here.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.